0: Man, Jay, Blink was such a good character. It's a shame they killed her off so early on. Blink's not dead, Miles. Well, right, but that's the Blink from another universe, you know? The the one who was leading the Exiles. Well, right. The Blink who was leading
1: the Exiles is from Earth-295, but I'm still talking about the one from
0: 616. Nah, dude, that one definitely died. In X-Men 37. It's right here in my notes. She got shredded by her own powers and then kind of blinked out of existence.
1: Or maybe she spent years in a half corporeal state between dimensions until Celine realized what was going on and rescued her.
0: Wait, Celine? The immortal death cult Celine who created a fake Roman colony in the Amazon rainforest Celine? Black Queen of the Hellfire Club Celine? If there's
1: another Celine running around, I don't know of them. Why would Celine rescue Blink? That's easy. She wanted Blink to work for her.
0: I guess teleporters are handy to have around. Did Blink ever meet back up with the X-Men? You know,
1: she did. First as an antagonist, obviously, given the whole Celine connection. And then after that, they tried to get her to stay, but she wanted to go do her own thing, which turned out to be a lot of rescue operations and trying to stop a band.
0: Like a band of brigands?
1: No, no, a band of musicians.
0: Were they bad musicians?
1: I'm not really Sure. Anyway, the relevant part is that their shows were causing massive natural disasters.
0: Why would a band want to cause natural disasters?
1: I mean, it wasn't really their fault. They were being semi-mind controlled.
0: By a telepath?
1: By the living, sentient black box of an interdimensional alien spaceship. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 271 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero
0: soap opera. And welcome back to us. We're both recording at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since we have been in this, the virtual studio at the same time.
0: Um, how, how were your travels? Uh, They were pretty good. New York Comic Con was a lot of work, but also a lot of fun, and I got to meet and re-meet a number of listeners, and that was really cool. And then I visited my family in Florida, and it was great to see them, and I went to Wizarding World and totally dorked out for a day. So, all told, pretty good. What about you, Jay? You were on, like, the other side of the world.
1: I was. I was in Prague for a week, which was pretty amazing. Um, I've been wanting to, or had been wanting to go there since I was a pretty little kid, and... It was really phenomenally cool to actually go. I did a whole, whole bunch of Jewish stuff. Um, we, we went to an ossuary, which was great. Ossuary, I guess. Um, which was, was pretty freaking amazing. Lots and lots and lots of bones just kind of piled up. And, and arranged artfully like to make words and coats of arms and, and a really nice chandelier.
0: So now I'm just uh, thinking of a version of Magneto who instead is, like, calcium-based and in X-Men number one made the threat to the world uh, incursive in the sky out of, like, bone dust instead of iron dust.
1: Or just out of bones, which I feel like would have been pretty much more fundamentally menacing. But the best part was that we um, sort of stumbled by accident into a Peter Sis ret- retrospective. And he's an illustrator who we both really love, but who specifically, when T was a little kid was responsible for her first introduction to Prague as a place or as an idea. So it was a kind of amazing bit of synchronicity. Um, he was he had he had lived in the U.S. in exile for, um, I think, from the, the mid to late 70s until the Velvet Revolution, which was in 1989. And during that time, a lot of the picture books he was making were about Prague and about the Czech Republic and his childhood in this place he might never go back to. Because um, he was, he was at that point, you know, starting to have kids himself, and anyway, um, he's a phenomenal writer and illustrator, and this exhibit is terrific. And if you happen to be in Prague while it's up, it's at it's at Docs, which is the Contemporary Art Museum, and everyone should go see it because it's terrific. We also went to a comics shop, oh yeah, which was kind of amazing. Because, um, so last time we went to Europe, we were in Brussels, which is sort of the center of of European comics and very much focused on that. And this was just sort of an American style comic shop. a um, A lot of superheroes translated into Czech. And it was completely surreal because the thing about Czech is that names are case specific. I don't know the technical grammatical term for it, but like the way your name ends depends on what its relative role in a sentence is or in a list. And so the creative credits on a lot of these are completely changed and seeing which names they changed and where and why was really fun and also I I learned that um in in Czech the the Clone Saga is uh Klonova
0: Saga. That's that's excellent. I mean, it's not quite as good as uh, was it Sabretooth's name in French, I think?
1: Yes, dance du sabre.
0: <laughs> Thank you, foreign languages, for actually being beautiful, rich tapestries that just sound funny to us because we don't understand them.
1: Well, in that case, it's it's one of those having having a name you can't just growl efficiently for that character feels
0: silly. I feel like you're underestimating francophones' abilities to growl in their native tongue.
1: I guess. I, I have trouble buying Sabretooth as a, as a native francophone,
0: though. Well, I'm not saying uh, Sabretooth himself, I'm saying, like, the French people that he menaces. They growl it to, uh, you know, try to scare him off.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound real effective.
0: Yeah, probably not. Well, anyway, speaking of things that are effective, we're gonna talk about the Phalanx and also the build-up to the team Generation X, because at long last, we are finally at the X-Men crossover of 1994, the Phalanx Covenant.
1: That's right, Everyone's going techno-organic. The funny part is we're not actually quite technically at Generation X yet. I feel like Generation X is really the new Inferno. The Phallax Covenant isn't like... It's been teased for so long. We're finally not quite actually there. We're, we're going to get to the next month teaser in the Phallax Covenant crossover, but we're not actually going to get to the p- title proper.
0: We're so close, though. We're so close. So... Let's talk a little bit about the way the Phalanx Covenant works. Now, we've seen a number of different types of crossovers, and the Phalanx Covenant is kind of like some of the early X-Men crossovers, which is to say it's multiple parallel stories that are related but don't directly interact a whole lot.
1: Which works very, very well for our purposes, because we can neatly divide them up into episodes.
0: Exactly. So, this episode is going to be about Generation Next, which is the chapter of the Phalanx Covenant in Uncanny X-Men, and X-Men, the core X-Men books.
1: It's also the section of the Phalanx Covenant that most directly leads into Generation X unsurprisingly based on its
0: title and it's got the same title as generation next the age of apocalypse generation x redo it's it's a whole thing we'll get there the second chapter is life signs which is x factor x force next caliber the team spinoffs and the third is final sanction wolverine and cable the solo books so it's kind of fun how it's divided uh not just in terms of what characters are in it but like by the type of book that participates in each section of the crossover
1: I think that's a really good way to do it, if you're going to do something like this, to have those more sort of organic pairings, the things that work better structurally with each title, and not really have to force everything into one big, contiguous storyline.
0: Yeah. Now, that said, some of the storylines work better than others. Uh, Personally, I would rank them Final Sanction best, Generation Next, second best, and Life Signs definitely in position Number three, but uh, I feel like that's a good way to, to do this. You know, we start with the middle ground, we end with the best, and we just deal with life signs in the middle.
1: You know, sometimes you just gotta grate your teeth and get through some Excalibur.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, especially in 1994.
1: Remember when it was the best book?
0: I know, I know, and now X-Force is the best book, although come to think of it, X-Force isn't life signs al- also.
1: I-, I gotta say x-men and uncanny x-men are, are putting in a really good showing right now
0: they really are it's true Speaking of putting in a good showing, there's my segue, these issues and every issue in the Phalanx Covenant had gimmick covers. They were wraparound covers, they were cardstock covers, they were expensive covers, and the special unique bit for the Phalanx Covenant was sort of a techno-organic, shiny, mechanical-looking strip on the right side, overlaid with one of the characters who was directly involved in the story— It looks really cool, and some of the covers have truly amazing art as well. We'll make sure we put at least one of those into the visual companion.
1: I think that you like this cover gimmick better than I do.
0: I think part of it is just I was buying these issues as they came out, and I was just fervently obsessed with X-Men stuff at the time. I mean, the cartoon was still going on. I was buying every X-Men book that came out. It was what I talked to my friends about all the time. Like, this was kind of the height of my X-Men fandom when I was young.
1: One thing I do really like about, well, not necessarily the gimmick covers, but some choices here, is that while each book retains its artist, retains its title, retains its logo treatment, it's very clear, even if you're not looking at the cover subtitles, that these are parts of the same story and the same crossover. Having that clearly connected design while retaining the individual flavors of the books, I think, is what crossover covers should be shooting for.
0: Yeah, and honestly, a lot of recent crossovers have been pretty good about that, too, like in the modern modern Marvel Universe. So, this chapter, Generation Next, like we've mentioned, it leads directly into Generation X, and... We'll see some interesting things about that, namely that the X-Men aren't really in it. It's basically Banshee and the White Queen, who are going to be the teachers in Generation X, Jubilee, who's going to be a member of it, and Sabretooth because, I don't know, why not? The X-Line just freaking loved Sabretooth at this point. Why? I mean, he was very violent. The 90s were, well, I'm not sure that they were very violent, but they really liked violence in their media.
1: Yeah, but they already had Wolverine everywhere.
0: Yeah, but he wasn't in the X-Books, so there you go. Although I guess he was in this crossover in his own book.
1: Yeah. Man, this is ridiculous.
0: It totally is. And speaking of ridiculousness, let's talk backstory. Let's talk Previously on X-Men.
1: Now, the X-Men have some rogues in the house. Not rogue, although she's there too sometimes, although she's not actually there during these issues but she technically lives there. Anyway, the point is, Sabretooth was captured a while back, and he has been imprisoned in the X-Mansion with explosive soft paws and and a muzzle, and Professor X is trying to reform him. It's not going very well.
0: Emma Frost, the White Queen, had been comatose in the X-Men's basement ever since the Sentinel attack that killed her students, the Hellions. She just woke up and promptly possessed Iceman so she could go find her kids, and ended up instead finding out about their deaths.
1: It was a really cool
0: issue. Speaking of kids, we recently met Cannonball's sister, Paige Guthrie, over in X-Force. She has currently ambiguous mutant shapeshifting powers and is all about learning to control those powers and becoming a hero like her brother. We like Paige. Paige is great.
1: Yeah, Paige is a good kid. Now, Sabretooth and the White Queen aren't the only villains currently within the Xavier School. There's someone else infiltrating it, and that is the Phalanx. Let's talk phalanx.
0: The phalanx are a techno-organic hive mind composed mostly of anti-mutant jerks who have upgraded themselves using the remains of a sadly deceased best robot teenager warlock.
1: They've also absorbed a whole, whole lot of other people, getting their knowledge with them. Now, at the center of the, the phalanx group are Stephen Lang, whom you might remember from the original Phoenix Saga, or actually the- the- events leading up to it, and Cameron Hodge, the OG X-Factor villain.
0: Also in the Phalanx is recreated sorta Doug Ramsey, Doug Locke. We've been talking a lot about him in our Excalibur episodes.
1: You know, you're not quite right there. He was in the Phalanx, but he has since been entirely separated from them and is now sort of trying to figure out exactly who he is and where he fits into the larger superhero world.
0: And we'll talk more about him in Life Signs. But what are the Phalanx's plans? Well, we have three episodes to tell you about exactly that.
1: I want to step aside for a moment and fast forward to the future, where the Phalanx have played a significant role in some recent books. Now, whether or not we end up talking about those in context of the Phalanx Covenant, I'm not sure, but we will not be covering the Hickman run at all, or spoiling recent books, in our central coverage, those three episodes where we're talking about the Phalanx Covenant. Whether we do something on the side or extra, we're still figuring out, but we're just not going to go there for now. So please take it as read that we're looking at these within their context of 1994, and there have been developments since.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about some of the less recent, but more recent than the story developments, but for the most part, the Phalanx Covenant. So let's dive into Uncanny X-Men number 316, Encounter. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Terry Austin and Dan Green, and colored by Steve Buccolato. So yeah, Joe Matarera, he's back. We saw a little bit of him recently in Uncanny, and he's going to be the regular penciler starting here for a few years, with, you know, a bunch of fill-ins, but still.
1: So it's so, so, so weird to me looking at him and Andy Kubert, because in combination, I feel like between the two of them, I can see every different iteration of Chris Bacchalo's art style in the mid-90s. Oh, I
0: know. It's like they could Voltron into Chris Bacchalo if they tried, and also if they were, like, robots.
1: But like he leans more in one direction sometimes, than the other other times. Like on on the X books, he's much much or or X Men, he's much much more Joe Mad. You know, Generation X is much more anti kubert inflected. Yeah, that's a really good point actually,
0: and I'm sure as always, inkers also factor into that. But yeah,
1: and I mean, Pachalo is of course an iconic artist in his own right. But honestly, that's part of why it's really neat seeing the ante- some of the antecedents that those signature styles came out of.
0: <laughs> totally. So, we have a couple of plot lines here. We have some stuff going on with the next generation of mutants, and then we have what Sexy Banshee is up to, what he's doing sexily. Let's talk about some of those kids, though. Let's go to Monaco.
1: I I feel like we need to address the Sexy Banshee thing that you just said. What's
0: happening here? Banshee's always sexy, and in this arc, he takes his shirt off at least once, and his abs are astonishing, and I can't get them out of my head. He has great hair too. Great hair and sideburns. I'm just saying, Banshee's a sexy yeah. dude. In fact, I would say I hope I look that good when I get that old. But I think I'm probably now older than even Banshee's supposed to be in this era.
1: I don't know. They keep calling him old, but then again, X Men. I'm. I'm. i Now. I'm. Now. I'm thinking about um, Final Fantasy VIII and like all of all of the ancient characters who've, who've aged out of the military school because they're like 19 oh god
0: i know i feel very old playing those games these days anyway let's go to monaco so in monaco a silent young dark-skinned woman is getting talked at by her guardian a woman named gail who's fucking awesome gail's this large middle-aged former mi6 badass and they're in the back of a limo as gail sort of plot splains the deal with this young woman
1: this is Monet Sanqua, and Monet has been unresponsive for months, ever since what happened to her brother and the twins.
0: And that's not explained. Um, obviously, that's going to be a big deal later. If you've read Gen X, you know why.
1: It is horrifically complicated, and it involves multiple body swaps.
0: Oh, X-Men. So, Gail wants to send Monet to Professor Xavier for help, but while that will ultimately kind of happen, she doesn't have time.
1: So, going back to what happened... Quick question, is this Monet at this point, or is this the the twins in her body?
0: Technically, it's her twin siblings in her body, and Monet herself is not around, but, like, this Monet has a pretty similar personality to real Monet, so you can kind of not worry about it. Okay. Yeah, pretty much that. So, the phalanx show up and attack the limo. And even though Gale has a truly badass last stand, I love this character who appears for, like, six panels, the phalanx kill everybody and teleport the still-unresponsive Monet away, using this really cool effect where they sort of wrap their techno-organic mesh around a person into this sort of oval Christmas ornament-looking thing and then just sort of flip out of existence. Yeah, so that's not great. Nope, but we'll come back to her. In the meantime, let's talk Sexy Banshee. Sexy Banshee is watching over a raging and restrained Emma Frost, and I love the way Joe Matarera draws, especially Banshee. He's sort of a, a 30-something hunk in this story. Like, I think I mentioned earlier, he changed his shirts later, and he has abs for days, and his hair's all floopy the way that only Joe Matarera can draw floopy hair, and his sideburns are great. I— I really enjoy this sort of, in some ways, rehabilitation of Banshee. Banshee's always been kind of the most boring of the all-new, all-different X-Men in most people's perceptions. I I love him myself. But they're really portraying him as a leading man here. And part of that seems to mean portraying him as very, like, uh, traditionally handsome and vital and energetic.
1: See, what I love is that nothing about him has really changed. It's just that his primary, secondary power of being the adult in the room has suddenly become plot-relevant.
0: Oh, I know, and that's part of why Banshee's so, so good in this era. Like, honestly, this is the best Banshee era that we're coming into, and since he's the main character of this story, like, that is one of the things I like most about this story.
1: I I feel so bad for him, though, because along with the whole adult-in-the-room power, you kind of feel like every single line of his dialogue should be, please don't make it any weirder than it already is.
0: (laughs) Right? Oh, man. Well, and speaking of people who do make it weird, like I said, Emma Frost. And... Emma's drawn very sexually as well, because Joe Matarera, I don't think, knows how to draw women not sexy. But what I want to talk about is their clothing, because Banshee is in this very textured, very three-dimensional, realistic-looking clothing, and Emma's just in this green bodysuit that basically looks like it was painted on. It's very 90s, it's not my favorite thing, but there it is.
1: Emma is in whatever the Xavier School sickbay clothing is, apparently... In, in their medical ward, they dress people in hyper-sexy footie pajamas.
0: I mean, I guess the alternative is being in one of those robes that's open in the back and so your butt's always hanging out, so, eh, either way.
1: I just don't understand why there have to be boob socks.
0: I mean... No, I was trying to come up with a uh, a witty rejoinder, but no, no, I have no answer either.
1: No, there's, there's no reasonable excuse here.
0: Now... We find out through the narration that Emma, who as you may recall we last saw in Iceman's body, she possessed Iceman, was telepathically coaxed back, to, back into her own body by Professor X like between issues. They use the word coaxed, so I'm imagining him like leaving
1: a line of treats or something.
0: What kind of treats would Emma go for?
1: I don't know, I'm just I'm just
0: imagining cat treats. I mean, she is pretty catty, so uh there you go.
1: No, I I it's it's Emma. It's it's I, I don't know, Oscar Wilde quote quote books or, or something.
0: <laughs> or Shrimp Scampi. Everyone loves Shrimp Scampi. Really? I mean, I do. Well, anyway, it's kind of weird because, you know, this is a major, major event for her to get back into her body, kind of like it was a major event for Captain Britain to disappear. I guess 1994 is just the era of stuff happening between issues, whatever, we deal with it. Banshee's kind of worried, though, because the two folks who are watching over Emma are... Iceman, and Storm, the two people that she has body-swapped with in the past. He's thinking maybe they're not the best people to be responsible for her well-being. Partly because they're kind of being assholes. They are. And Storm just sort of shoes Banshee out. And she's talking a little funny as Banshee gets more and more concerned. And you know I'd never be so naughty as to disobey Professor Xavier. Huh. Also, her outfit's kind of a weird, off-version of her Giant Size X-Men number 1-era outfit. You'd think it was an error, but no, this is actually really clever foreshadowing.
1: Well, it is an error. It's just not the artist's error.
0: Exactly. Banshee wanders off and answers a holo-call that comes in from Scott and Jean. They just got done with that whole Sunset Grace thing, and they have got to talk to Xavier. They have info about the Legacy Virus. I mean, they sort of do. It won't really be followed up on. But still...
1: They think they do because before the Sunset Grace thing they were in the future for 12 years raising their kid and fighting strife and apocalypse. Um but but here they're and I I love their awkward post-honeymoon conversations by the way when people are always like how's your how was your honeymoon and they were like it it, it, was, it was it was a thing. It was, it was, it was a trip.
0: Yup, that it was. But since Xavier's on Muir Isle as Banshee tells them, they're just going to head over there and off to the final sanction chapters of the Phalanx Covenant. Archangel at this point shows up and he's freaked out. He's like, what did you tell those people? They weren't authorized. What's going on? And this is Archangel with his blue skin, with his blonde hair, with his metal wings, but wearing a palette-swapped red and white version of his blue and white late silver age costume. Again, this isn't a costume that he's used before, I don't believe. Which
1: is a shame because it's kind of a great costume.
0: It totally is. Of course, watch me just have forgotten the issue where he does wear it. But the point is we haven't seen Archangel in that outfit yet at this point.
1: So, Banshee, as he progresses through the mansion, discovers other X Men acting strange as well. He sees Psylocke leaving Xavier's super private ready room, and he's able to just hide from her in the shadows from ultra trained ninja telepath Psylocke.
0: I love the creeping dread of all of this. Like, as we, the readers, start to wonder the same thing Banshee's wondering, which is what's going on? Why are the X Men not right? What, what happened to this place? What happened to these people? And Banshee is the perfect person to handle this, because he's been a heroic man of action, but he's also been a spy. And so he plays it quiet, he plays it subtle, he looks before he leaps. He's like the anti-X-Force.
1: Which is funny, because his his signature skill is being loud.
0: It's true, that, there is some irony there. So Banshee asks the X-Computer to locate the X-Men he's been talking to, and... They're not there. None of them are there.
1: Well, not exactly. There are a few people there. Just none of the ones Banshee's been talking to as he asks.
0: Computer, identify all essential personnel on grounds at this time.
1: Designate. Banshee. Access. Corridor 12. White Queen. Medical Center. Jubilee. Danger Room. Sabretooth. Maximum security level. No other identifiable life forms on grounds at this time.
0: Saints preserve us. So, that's a problem. So there was this episode of Tiny Toon Adventures, speaking of the 90s, back in probably around the time this came out. It was a, I think it was maybe a Halloween episode, but Buster Bunny wakes up, and he goes to see all of his friends, and it turns out they're all secretly monsters, and he can't find any of his friends who are actually real people, actually the people he remembers. He's alone in the world with these monsters wearing the faces of his friends, and I had nightmares about it for years, and it's kind of the same thing going on here, except with a screaming Irishman instead of a little blue bunny.
1: Yeah, academic difference.
0: But it's it's legitimately effective. Like, this is my favorite part of Generation Next. It's the early horror story of it all.
1: Yeah, this is a classic horror gimmick, but it's one that really never stops being effective.
0: So, Banshee, after sexily taking off his shirt, like, seriously, he is so cut. I don't care how old or young he is, god damn. He suits up in his classic green and yellow costume and goes to find Sabretooth... And Sabretooth's being guarded.
1: Right. Sabretooth is being guarded by Rogue, who won't let Banshee in.
0: Even in Banshee? Sugar? There's this impassive expression on her face, and the sugar is like an afterthought. It's so creepy.
1: Yeah, it's like she read the Rogue style guide and is just kind of going by the book.
0: So Banshee says, all right, now it's man of action time. And Sonic screams her into shards of circuitry. That's right. Rogue is a member of the Phalanx.
1: Now, this is a really good strategy. In general, when you suspect that the X-Men are intruders and you want to catch one off guard and take them out go for the one pretending to be rogue because if it is actually rogue you probably won't seriously harm her
0: it's pretty awesome banshee's so smart he's so smart and competent and i this is just my banshee crush episode and i am utterly unashamed as you should be he's great so he and Sabretooth ambush the fake X-Men as the fake X-Men, the Phalanx, are trying to transmit the X-Mansion's data to the Phalanx Hive Mind. The Hive Mind wants to learn how to absorb mutants into itself, which it currently can't. It can only absorb humans.
1: Now, teaming up with Sabretooth is a risky move, and it's it's one we've seen the X-Men perform before fairly recently, and Sabretooth predictably turned on them. And- He hasn't at this point. Now, Sabretooth obviously recognized that Rogue wasn't Rogue. He's got, you know, the Sabretooth sense of smell. And for now, he's willing to work with Banshee until they figure out what's going on.
0: So they free Emma and Jubilee, the other two non-phalanx in the entire X-Mansion, while they're at it. And I love this mismatched motley crew that are the main characters of this part of Generation Next.
1: Yeah. I love that... We're we're getting what's going to be the central adult dynamic of Generation X in this story. We're we're seeing Banshee and the White Queen's rapport really established beyond beyond the sort of seeds we saw planted in in the issue where where Emma possessed Iceman. And it's happening because they're basically being forced into th- into a situation where they are the two competent adults, where the other two people in this situation are Sabretooth, who is absolutely untrustworthy but also will absolutely not be useful strategizing with them since his main tactic for everything is let's just kill him, and Jubilee, who is a kid who, whom they both feel very strongly needs to be protected.
0: So they realize they're going to be overrun by the phalanx soon, so they just blow up the whole damn data core of the X-Mansion, including the phalanx who have started to merge with it to steal its data. I guess Xavier doesn't believe in off-site backups, and honestly, I can't fully blame him. What with mutants being hated and feared, I don't know that I would trust 1994 Google. Or, you know, whatever the 1994 equivalent of Google was. I guess cloud storage wasn't really a thing much then.
1: Xavier just posted to newsgroups a lot.
0: Oh, man, he just updated his live journal with like all of his, you know, notes on mutants and Sinister had his genetic code all up there, but it was set to private.
1: Was live journal around to 1994? I feel like 1994 was pretty much like AOL and Prodigy.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Man, it's hard to make internet jokes when we're talking about 1994. I guess there was like, yeah, BBSs and stuff. Hey, hey, I went for news groups. Legit. What our heroes also learned before blowing up the computer center was that the phalanx have many goals, and one of them is to find and capture all of the young mutants who were on Xavier's watch list. That's right, Xavier was keeping an eye on new mutants just in case he needed to help them out or you know, they needed assistance with their powers or whatever. These are mutants who are clueless about any of this, and now they have killer robots coming after them.
1: You know, you are awfully, awfully optimistic about Xavier's intentions here. I mean, I I think that that's probably what he was telling himself his intentions were. But, you know, just in case they needed some condescending paternalism or dubious moral
0: advice. You know, his intentions are good. Yeah,
1: just just in case they needed a little mind control.
0: And that leads us to X-Men number 36, Drop the Leash.
1: This is written by Fabian Niseza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Digital Chameleon, who, which I assume is a studio and not actually a little chameleon, like, holding a, a, a paintbrush, which is pretty really easy to picture and pretty charming.
0: I mean, there were a studio of colorists named Digital Chameleon in 1994 who worked on a lot of X-Men, but you never know, maybe this one issue was exactly what you described. With their little sticky fingertips right? So this cover for this issue is actually one of my clearest memories of the Phalanx Covenant, because Banshee's cape on it, and on the cover of X-Men number 37, I guess uh, Kubert likes drawing Banshee's cape, is enormous, and so it's just all yellow and black stripes as almost a backdrop for the entire cover, and it looks fucking badass.
1: I mean, it's a great way to use that cape, and it's a great way to use that patterning, because those stripes, and especially those stripes in the sort of semicircular design of the cape do a great job of conveying motion, of conveying chaos, and of, of of sort of giving the whole cover a sense of kind of a chaotic mid-battle layout.
0: Also, it just makes Banshee seem really badass and central to have so much of his costume covering the cover. He's also the only one with a cape right now. Well, I'm glad he had the good sense to have one.
1: So I, I play Marvel Puzzle Quest um, because I'm, I'm boring, and... I've become intensely aware of the spatial economics of capes because it shows you all three of the characters you have. And if you've got a character with a big cape in the center, you just really can't see the other two.
0: (laughs) I mean, given some of the characters with capes, not Banshee, but some of the other ones, that seems appropriate, like sinister or whatever.
1: Oh, I assume that Magneto does that on purpose continually.
0: (laughs) Right. Anyway, X-Men 36, what happens?
1: Well, the phalanx is... Yeah, still collecting new mutants, but it's also trying to make headway studying the ones it's got. Specifically, it's trying to work its way into and learn about M, who simultaneously is calmly taking the opportunity to learn about
0: it. Now, M will be the codename of Monet later on. It's kind of weird, like, people just start calling her M in this story for no real reason. I guess the writers were excited about the codenames that were coming up in Generation X.
1: I mean, maybe they just liked it as a nickname. It is the first letter of her actual name.
0: I guess. But yeah, the phalanx still can't absorb mutants. That's why they want these kids. They figure they can do all sorts of evil experiments on the kids to figure out how to do it before trying to absorb the mutants they really care about, the X-Men.
1: We find this out via Monet's perspective, but we also find it out because we see a conversation between the two intelligences who are currently at the center of the phalanx. That's Cameron Hodge and Stephen Lang. And I have concerns about the state of affairs, not only because they're both terrible, but because of a really specific change to Cameron Hodge's appearance, to one characteristic of it that has been consistent now for years. His glasses are intact.
0: Right. They've been broken, like, all through the Extinction Agenda, uh, basically ever since he started going demony and techno-organic.
1: Yeah, And it's very weird seeing him in the phalanx in this, you know, still weird techno-organic form, but much less distinctly himself— And part of that loss of individuality of personality is the intact glasses.
0: Well, and also I love that his speech bubbles are all rectangular. They're all squared off at the corners, which totally contrasts with the mixed case text and the sort of wobbly round, irregular speech bubbles of Stephen Lang. Like we see the confidence and the perfection of Hodge as part of the phalanx and the sort of not quite fitting in uncertainty of Stephen Lang, even though Lang is ostensibly their leader.
1: That's right. Hodge is all in, and Hodge, in fact, is all in to the point that he says, you know, anything that can't be assimilated into the phalanx needs to be destroyed, that's how we'll get rid of opposition, and, you know, we should just assimilate all of humanity while we're at it. He is, he has decided that the phalanx is the next stage of, ev- of human evolution, and the best, you know, preemptive way to keep anyone from stopping them is to either absorb or destroy all of life on Earth.
0: Wee! Hodge, you're even more of a jerk! Hooray!
1: Yeah, when Stephen Lang is your moral compass, there is something very wrong.
0: Stephen Lang, when he was sort of merged with the Master Mold in that one Marvel Comics Presents story, did have a part of his personality specifically named conscience.
1: I guess. Now, part of the phalanx's deal is that it's a hive mind. It can split off, it can do other stuff. So while all of this is going on, In Cumberland County, Kentucky, the phalanx makes off with Paige Guthrie.
0: So, it's this awesome image of this big, multi-faced, irregular phalanx blob just exploding out from inside the Guthrie house. Jay, I know you used to talk about what made the phalanx look cool versus not look cool. What do you think about when they're portrayed like this?
1: I mean, I think in... Both of the titles that we're looking at today, The Phalanx, is creepy and weird and protean, and I really like it.
0: Fuck yeah. So meanwhile, in St. Louis, a bunch of cops are holding teenager Everett Thomas—this is going to be a character named Sync in Generation X—hostage.
1: Sync S-Y-N-C-H, not Sync sink, S-I-N-K. Yeah.
0: I guess they're not holding him hostage. They don't want ransom. But they're holding him at gunpoint because he just yelled and a bunch of windows on the street shattered, and so he's a scary mutant and they point guns at him.
1: Okay, look, he was fighting some phalanx at the time, and also half of those cops turn out to be phalanx. Um, anyway, what it turns out that Everett's deal is, is that he can borrow anyone's powers if they're in the area.
0: In fact, exactly like Hope, come to think of it. Yeah, and sort of like Mimic.
1: Kind of. So, that window-shattering scream is something he had access to because Banshee and company are here to save the day. They're going down Xavier's list, they're trying to beat the Phalanx there. And in fact, this is the only case where they're going to succeed.
0: And I'm really interested in the dynamic here between Sabretooth and Banshee.
1: Yeah, Banshee is really letting go when it comes to fighting the Phalanx. He is enthusiastically blowing them up. He's using his powers in ways and at a level that he's never aimed at, at, you know, sentient opponents. And Sabretooth is impressed.
0: It was just interesting
1: to see a darker side of you, Irish. Little bit of me.
0: I not as much as you'd like to see, Boyo, perhaps, but more than enough for me, I assure you.
1: Now the other pair of characters, Jubilee and Emma Frost, are, are off doing, doing other stuff, and, and Jubilee is not starting to respect Emma, or vice versa particularly. Also, Jubilee has begun to call humans straight genes.
0: Huh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I just got some straight-cut genes myself, but I don't think she meant those. So the phalanx, we find, are after Jubilee, not because she's one of the people opposing them, but because she's actually on their list. She's one of the next generation of mutants, which makes sense.
1: So, I love how Emma takes them out here. Because remember, when Emma possessed Iceman, one of the things she did was use his powers in ways that he had never considered, and... With a degree of flexibility and and alacrity that he'd he'd really never managed. And here she's basically indirectly doing the same thing with Jubilee's. She connects Everett and Jubilee telepathically, and she has Everett use Jubilee's powers to blow up the phalanx because he is not subject to Jubilee's self-imposed limitations. Yeah,
0: we saw Jubilee just detonate this gigantic house back, way back in Acts of Vengeance, when Psylocke had her body swap nonsense that was going on, and Jubilee's scared to do that. Sink, however, doesn't have the same trauma and the same fear that she does. This is one of the first things we start learning about Sink, is his confidence. And Jubilee, one of the traits we've seen in her a lot lately, is fear.
1: Well, And she's always had a rocky relationship with her powers. I mean, she likes them at a harmless, small, contained level, but she's really not willing to let go with them. She has been pulling her punches since she found the X-Men, since before she found the X-Men. As previously, any attack leveled at the phalanx doesn't stop them completely. It just slows them down. They always come back. And this time when they do... They stop to talk with the X-Men, and they point out that, you know, they know all about the X-Men. They have absorbed a large number of people who know a lot about them, and, you know, they've also rated all of Xavier's files in the mansion. But some of that information they've gotten a lot more directly, and specifically one of the people whom they've absorbed is Sarah Gray.
0: Jean Grey's sister, just like they absorbed Candy Southern, Angel's dead ex-girlfriend, a number of issues ago in Uncanny. What's with
1: the phalanx and X-Factor supporting characters?
0: I know, right? Now, Sarah Grey went missing a long time ago, way back in 1987 in X-Factor number 12, when the right blew up her house, Cameron Hodges' organization. We finally find out where she is, which is dead and absorbed by the Phalanx. Remember when she was one of the candidates to be the fifth member of X-Factor that Chris Claremont proposed? Like, she was going to be really, really significant, and this is how her story ends. Damn it. I know, right? Now, the Phalanx manifests as a simulacrum of Stephen Lang. That's the face that it uses as it talks to our heroes, and Emma seems to know Lang, which is weird. Why would she? But then I found out, I looked it up, Emma probably knows Lang from the backup stories to classic X-Men number six and seven.
1: Well, even without those backup stories, we know that Lang's work was being funded by the Hellfire Club.
0: That's true. But we also find out he was working with the Council of the Chosen in those issues, which was like the predecessor to the Lord's Cardinal before Sebastian and Emma killed the rest of them. It's actually a cool little bit of story. While Emma
1: and Jubilee and Banshee are being horrified by the revelations of, of who's in the, the phalanx, and Everett is just kind of baffled because he doesn't know any of these people. Sabretooth sees and recognizes it as something else, which is a distraction, and he uses it to slide off his explosive soft paws and muzzle
0: and flee. Oh. That's no good. Well, let's run away from that into Uncanny Expo number 317. Enter freely and of your own will. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Dan Green, and colored by Steve Buccolato. And once again, let's see what the kids are up to first. I like the kids. First of
1: all, I feel cheated that there aren't any vampires in this
0: story. I know, but I generally feel cheated by that.
1: Alright, so, okay, so... The phalanx has dressed the kids it's kidnapped in these skin-tight bodysuits, but I really question why it decided that teenagers needed boob windows.
0: Yeah, just the female characters have these cut-out rectangles over the tops of their breasts. Like, if there was a purpose for it, you'd think the male characters would have the same, but, uh, no.
1: The female characters have thigh cutouts too, and it's not
0: cool. Now, we mentioned characters plural, so who's there with Paige? Well, aside from Paige, we have some new characters. We have Angelo Espinoza, a cynical Latino kid with gray, stretchy skin. In fact, Paige managed to mistake Angelo for a blanket when she first came to. That's awkward. We have Clarice Ferguson, a scared purple girl with facial tattoos. Or at least facial markings. We have Monet Saint-Croix, you know, the one we met earlier. She's still silent, but currently she's ripping off bits of her techno-organic suit thing and playing with them, which is kind of weird.
1: Now, there's one more character here. I I guess Clarice and Angelo are new. Who's the other new guy?
0: It's Gregor... somebody. He's a beefy, gee-golly-whiz, teenage blonde Superman type, and he's immediately very annoying. Like, I approve of earnestness, but this guy takes it too far.
1: Now, I gotta say, even the first time I read this, I pegged this guy as a ringer immediately. And he is. He is the phalanx trying to infiltrate their group. And I'm I'm very satisfied with, with like much younger Mii's instincts there.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and and you're totally right. The, the heroes don't find out immediately, but they will shortly. And I love Paige here. She immediately goes into leadership mode. She's comforting Clarice, she's planning. Like, she doesn't know what the hell's going on, but she wants to fix it anyway. And this is Paige. She just jumps right in. She is all enthusiasm and effort.
1: Now, she is also unfortunately once again subject to some of the worst art decisions in this arc. Because Paige has been infected by the phalanx, and somehow this infection is spreading from the crotch out.
0: There. There are so many jokes to make, but but I I feel like we shouldn't make no, them. No,
1: no, Paige is very young. We try not to sexualize her.
0: Damn it, Joe Mad! Why did you do that? But like it's it's I mean I get why in that it's like central, but no, no. Well, this time the aforementioned cynical Angelo, the guy with the stretchy skin, is the one to give a pep talk, just as Paige is starting to despair.
1: Enough, Chica! You were right to believe there must be a way out. We can overcome this. Why the sudden change in attitude? Just because I'm oppressively negative doesn't mean I'm not smart enough to hope.
0: Yay, I like Angelo. A beardy phalanx dude, though, takes this as his cue to burst into the room, complete with a bunch of screaming faces grafted into his chest. This is Harvest. Harvest. A new face of the phalanx, of this collective intelligence. We actually saw a beardy dude go into a clearly labeled phalanx van in in Uncanny X-Men number 308. I don't think we mentioned, but yeah, it's this guy. He voluntarily joined the phalanx, and now he's scary.
1: Yeah, this was a human who wanted to save the world from mutants, but since his transformation, his goals have simplified. Now he just wants to eliminate organic life, either by killing it or by absorbing it into the
0: phalanx. He's a simple guy with simple needs. And Clarice, she's been scared this whole time, that's the purple girl, and her fear turns to anger. She uses her powers. She blinks the guy, and it is such a cool effect. It's like he's sliced into these irregular bits that are briefly misaligned before going back together. It's like when a samurai does the single stroke, and then their opponent falls into two pieces, but, like, all over her target's body. It's, It's badass.
1: Yeah, it's, it's teleportation, but you get the impression that it's a very Star Trek-style teleportation, where whatever she's teleporting breaks down and rematerializes, or something like that. Um, its full effects are never quite played out. We know Clarice is scared of her powers. We know she can't entirely control them. We're going to see her teleport something more effectively later on, but in general... She's she's not confident in her powers, and she's not really capable of using them without killing whatever she's trying to teleport. Something else I want to note about Clarice is the lettering attached to her. She doesn't have her own font or balloon style, but she talks very quietly, and her lettering is very small within very large balloons, and that's significant because when she talks at normal volume, when she raises her voice, it really stands out.
0: Yeah, yeah, Clarice is a fascinating character, and of course... She's going to be Blink in the Age of Apocalypse, an incredibly popular, incredibly significant character. And her origins, you really see just how fascinating she is immediately. So Harvest runs the fuck away from this because, ouch, and Monet suddenly becomes a lot more conversational. She has apparently used the techno-organic material that she ripped off of her costume to make a little gadget thing that disintegrates Gregor because he was Phalanx.
1: How did Monet know? And as Monet says, there are precious few things I don't know, sir.
0: So Gregor's gone, and that's probably for the best. Apparently why he was talking all dorky-like is because the phalanx aren't good at figuring out, like, modern stuff about people? I don't know, it's weird.
1: I love this, because Gregor seems dorky and old-fashioned, but he also very specifically reads like a Stan Lee teen. He is the kid being written to talk like kids talk by a grown-up who does not know how kids talk.
0: That's a really good point, actually.
1: And that's what tipped Monet off, that there was something wrong with him.
0: So Monet punches a hole in the wall because she has all sorts of different powers, and they head off. But Paige is super messed up by the virus and says, no, leave me behind, I'll just slow you down. And Monet says, no, she's willing to take the risk. For now. I love their dynamic. It's like Paige's effort and passion versus the cold perfection of Monet.
1: And that dynamic is going to stay really interesting um, as they go forward really over the years. Now, that's what the kids are up to. What's Sexy Banshee doing?
0: Well, Sexy Banshee has been traveling with Emma, Sabretooth, and Jubilee following the psychic signal that they got through the phalanx to the kids, but the signal's gone dead so they stop at frost enterprises Emma's company
1: well they stop at her san francisco safe house um and with with a clue in 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 the book and 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 with some math i was able to ter- determine that her very well appointed safe house uh, cost a minimum of 3.936 billion U.S. dollars. Now that's 1994 dollars in 2019 currency. That's going to be the equivalent of about 6.8 billion, or one sixteenth of a Jeff Bezos. The reason I was able to work this out is that it, the book states that that her her um, her house, her her facilities, and specifically her security cost roughly half of the GNP of Paraguay. Now the reason I said a minimum of $3.938 billion for that, is that I was only able to find Paraguay's GDP for 1994. Its GNP was presumably at least somewhat higher.
0: The more you know. So, Emma's place is ridiculously impressive, and Banshee's distrustful of Emma, and she's uh, angry at him for even suggesting she would betray them, and I love their banter.
1: That's not even banter so much. Their dynamic as it evolves is is... Interesting and fun, they don't trust each other, but they do trust each other's competence remarkably well, even if they question each other's motives, as Banshee says.
0: Now tell us what you hope to accomplish by bringing us here, if and you're through trying to impress us.
1: I have a whole list of things I can do to impress you, Mr. Cassidy, but there are children present. So instead, I'll psionically command the computer to bring up this.
0: And it's secret schematics of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s nearest safe house, which they break into with a brief detour to whammy out the guards that see through their psychic invisibility because they have wet footprints. Man,
1: I do not buy that Emma would not think to cover that up, but, you know,
0: whatever. She was in a coma for a real long time. And with that information, they mosey on to X-Men number 37, The Current's Shift.
1: This is, again, um, written by Fabian Nasseza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked now by Matt Ryan and Mike Sellers, and covered by Kevin Somers, who may or may not be a
0: chameleon. What's going on here on the ship with the kids?
1: Yeah, so the kids are on a ship. They've broken out of the phalanx, and they've determined that the phalanx are, are out at sea, so they don't really have any escape. Blink- is able to use her powers to briefly disrupt it, and Monet punches it to bits. I love Monet because... So Monet is extremely multi-talented. She is telepathic. I don't think she's telekinetic at this point, although I might be mistaken. She can fly, and she's got super strength and
0: near-invulnerability. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the premise that I was introduced to Monet with is that she's perfect.
1: Yeah, she's also absolutely brilliant. I'm not sure if that's part of her power set or just sort of there,
0: as it is with, with for, for instance, Beast. So the phalanx they've been fighting is part of Harvest, the beardy phalanx dude that went after them earlier. He's cut off from the hive mind for some reason. We'll find out why in the other chapters of the Phalanx Covenant. But he's still absorbed all life on the ship except for them. But that's Okay.
1: Because the cavalry is here, Paige has been saying, well, I know the X-Men, the X-Men are gonna come save us, it's gonna be okay. Sure enough, they're rescued, but not by the X-Men. They are are most immediately rescued by by Sabretooth, who is is the one who gets to them while Banshee and Sink are are still snorkeling in. Emma and Jubilee are sneaking in elsewhere and have a conversation that I kind of want to go aside to, just because... It's a very, very good, again, foreshadowing of Generation X.
0: Yeah, the transformation of Emma's character here is very well done. And, you know, you sort of have to ignore some of the truly horrifying shit she's done before. But for the sake of a good story and some good dialogue, let's go with it.
1: Right. Um, Jubilee, you know, they're, they're talking about Jubilee's powers, that Jubilee is scared to use them, and that she hasn't had a lot of training.
0: And Emma is surprisingly comforting.
1: It's perfectly understandable for you to be a little afraid Jubilee. Your potential is rather formidable. By the same token, perhaps it's time that people like me see to it that youngsters like you are better taught and trained than the previous group of young mutants under our charges. We owe them that much, at least.
0: I like this, Emma. So, Sabretooth Outside, like we said, is working on saving the kids, as is Banshee, and they at least temporarily take out Harvest. But Paige still has a lot of techno-organic scary stuff coming from her groinal region. And so Sabretooth just, like, guts her. He
1: doesn't, though. He actually—he he somehow realizes, or at least guesses, that Paige's phalanx infection is only skin-deep. And he just splits open her outer skin, her outer carapace, revealing an uninfected metal form within. Now— Page's powers are still kind of nebulous at this point, but we're starting to get them. Specifically, she sheds off layers of skin and whatever's in, and, and at least the skin beneath is, can be new substances, can be things like metal or, or whatever. Um, also her, her shed skin here has a full head of hair
0: and somehow that makes it
1: especially gross.
0: I really like that Paige's powers are gross. Like, honestly, a lot of Generation X's powers are gross, and that's cool. We'd see Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley explore that years later in New X-Men, but this is kind of where it starts, and I like it.
1: A detail that I love that comes up um, in the actual Generation X series is that she's really bad about just leaving her shed skins around.
0: Right, and they don't dissolve like Spider-Man spent webbing.
1: Nope, there's there's just, you know, a skin over there in the corner, like, like, a, a lizard shed it, only it's a human and there's a full head of hair. I bet Locks of Love loves
0: her. Oh god, they totally would, yeah. But anyway, Harvest, you know, they defeated him. Well, he's Phalanx, so he comes back again.
1: sabertooth Sabretooth and Banshee decide that they're gonna hold him off so the rest can escape.
0: But Blink, who's been the most scared of any of the characters, the most hesitant to act, makes a decision.
1: Ma'am, Harvest... Can't be stopped, can it? I mean, even if we do get away, today it'll keep coming after us, won't it?
0: It will. We're simply delaying the inevitable.
1: Then it has to be stopped, right? I mean, right now, doesn't it?
0: And stop Harvest. Blink does.
1: And this, incidentally, is is the point as she resolves to do this, that her lettering goes full normal size, that she she makes that decision and, and that, that has that resolve. So she blinks everyone else, she blinks away a section of the ship's deck with everyone else on it so that they can't stop her and just dumps them into the water. She's able to do that without harming them. But then she turns her powers fully on Harvest and gets caught in them herself. Banshee tries to catch her, but she falls out of his grasp and into nothing.
0: It's so scary and so sad. She's just slipping away. She's tearing apart. Her fingers are falling apart as Banshee's trying to hold onto her. And this is
1: this is really beautifully executed. Kubert makes this scene, this death both really graphic and really not at the same time because he does a lot of it with panel borders and layouts. And because she's not she's not being shredded. She's not being being pulled into strips of skin. She's just sort of coming apart almost dimensionally she's she's not anchored into one plane anymore and it's really beautifully done another detail I love is that Banshee falls after he fails to catch her and the reason for that is that he's frustrated and despairing and he's, he just yells and he's not using his powers like he's just yelling in despair and so he's, he can't stay aloft
0: I didn't catch that. That's so freaking cool. But yeah, Blink, I mentioned, was sort of the most intriguing of these new characters. And that was a smart and gutsy move to introduce a character who's that fascinating only to kill her. It really makes the loss hurt.
1: So Banshee is okay, of course. He lands in the water. They're they're able to pull him out. And the the grownups and the remaining kids make their way to land where they grieve and try to figure out what to do next. Now, of course, we know what they're going to do next. Because we have the advantage of a, a blurb in the bottom corner of the last page saying, coming next month, Generation X.
0: So that's the first third of the Phalanx Covenant. Jay, what'd you think? I thought it was pretty cool.
1: I don't think it really conveys the Phalanx's scope. It doesn't really give us a sense of what we're working with and what they're up against. I think it's a great origin story for Generation X more than anything else.
0: Yeah, if this were the whole phalanx coven, it wouldn't work, but because we have two other chapters, one of which really focuses on what the phalanx's deal is, I think this one's free to do exactly what it did. It's free to kick the X-Men out of their own book, have the phalanx only be a relatively small, scary presence, and mainly just introduce us to these new dynamics and new characters, and in that regard, I think it succeeds pretty well.
1: Now, this is normally where we would answer listener questions, but we're running way over time this episode, so I think we're just gonna skip ahead, um, and we will get back to those next episode or try to. The Phalanx Coven is just pretty dense stuff.
0: It totally is, yeah.
1: Now, what is enabling us to go into the dense details of the Phalanx Coven and everything else we do are our listeners. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and our Patreon subscribers are the folks who allow us to stay not only on the air, but entirely free of outside advertising. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, I, I think, um, as you may have gathered from our coverage, the mic is going to Sexy Banshee.
0: Old Sean's been feeling quite the outcast of late. And that's even before worrying about me old team being replaced with robots, the danger to all me future students, and Moira's distance. Sprattles, what do you do to decompress when your love is too far away to get proper freaky? You, you change into something more comfortable, you say? Well, me abs are a bit constrained under all this fabric, and me sheen of sweat that covers me skin would do well for some exposure. I know ye understand, Spraddles. A, a perfect eight-pack could be a blessing and a curse. Can ye give me a hand? Me sweater is caught on me perfect sideburns.
1: And what's this another character in now? Uh, there, there's an Emma Frost here to pick up the slack.
0: How charming. "'Sweaters,' you say. "'I worry you make it lost in all that fabric, Banshee. "'Why, Matt Connor understands. "'Our underwear can be outerwear anywhere. "'And if we're ever cold, that's what furry capes are for. "'Now, Matt, be a dear. "'Help me out of this garish green bodysuit "'the X-Men poured me into and pass me that bustier. "'If we're to rescue the children, we must be respectable.' and let's perhaps run very fast over to the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: You make for unlikely allies, Matthew Dirk, Cecilia Hudson. Look at you, thrown together by fate and common adversity, with little camaraderie and still less trust between the two of you. You'd best hope for a miracle, because what passes for teamwork certainly isn't going to pass muster today.
0: And with that...
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
0: New episodes come on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, and maybe hear a lot more about Banshee's sexy abs, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Phalanx Covenant gets weird. There's a dog guy and some eggs. It's a whole thing.